0: You're listening to an episode of the C-19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C-19.
1: This episode begins with language that most consider offensive, including profanity. The following clip is from May 2017. A white male teacher is calmly justifying his use of the N-word to a very upset black male student. The teacher smugly insists that the student is setting himself up for failure if he's going to live his life letting a word bother him so much.
2: You acting like don't fuck we're having a conversation. It, and You can say the word, but I can't. You can't say, the word. say nigger no. or fucking nigger. No. Calling somebody. The that are not a fucking grace word. my fucking race are my fucking teacher. Don't, teach you, don't say that shit. I'm not calling you anything. I don't give a fuck No one's calling him. You, it. you it. said it. You said it. You said it. I'm dude if, dude, we're, dude. if we're in a class and I'm teaching you, hey, yeah. the word nigger is an old fucking thing. That please, it's a word, bro. You cannot go through life and act like a word. Stop fucking saying that shit. Can affect you. Stop saying nigger and nigger. Point blank fucking period. You keep saying it. I can say it. I, I said fucking, it one time. You missed you your conversation. You're coming on to the first conversation. We, we, we had, had a whole assembly. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about, about after school. We had a assembly after, after school. Times. I can say it. I'm black.
1: Debates about the N-word never go away. But many discussions lack thoughtfulness and historical context, as if research hasn't been done to make scholars, teachers, and general readers More informed. To take recent examples alone, in 2003, Harvard Law School professor Randall Kennedy published a study revealing what he called the strange career of a troublesome word. In 2007, Jabari Asim published The N Word Who Can Say It, Who Shouldn't, and Why, which is a thorough cultural history tracing the word's use not only in legal discourse, but also in popular culture and art. In 2011, debates about the word landed on the radar of C-19 scholars when New South Books released an edition of Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn that replaced the N-word with the word slave. The Huck Finn example is important because C-19 scholars likely believe it's more directly related to their work than the aforementioned books by Kennedy and Assim. But what makes it even more important is that people working on the 19th century also seem to view the debate in terms of whether Twain is being censored rather than considering how they might hold themselves to a higher standard as teachers and scholars. Because I have constantly observed this tendency to focus on censorship of a firmly canonical author rather than on our own responsibility, I am offering this podcast episode. My name is Karetha Mitchell. I'm an associate professor of English at Ohio State University. I earned my Ph.D. at the University of Maryland College Park, and my research centers on violence, especially in the United States. Violence that is both physical and discursive, both literal and symbolic. My first book is called Living with Lynching. It examines Black-authored plays about mob violence that were written before 1930. It won a couple of awards but it's relevant to this discussion because it highlights the power of performance, the power of embodied practices. In other words, I acknowledge the difference between seeing a word on a page versus giving it life with one's breath and speaking it aloud. And of course, the difference between seeing a word on a page versus hearing it spoken. I am also the editor of the 2018 Broadview edition of Francis E.W. Harper's 1892 novel, Iola Leroy. As I say in its introduction, this edition is designed to highlight what most teachers, students, and general readers need help prioritizing, the perspectives of people who are not white. This podcast episode is designed in the same way. Thank you for taking this journey with me. This is how we will proceed. I will begin with my experiences as a professor who has developed classroom practices that are different from anything I ever experienced. I will also talk about the criticism I've received for developing these pedagogical practices. Next, I will discuss my experiences teaching texts that feature the N-word and other slurs. After that, you will hear from my former students. What I have done that is most different from what I experienced as a student is to develop what I call a class covenant. It features five guidelines. You can access the full text at kareethamitchell.com where I've made it a blog post. Here. I will share only the introductory statement and the two guidelines that have sparked the most conversation over the years. Class Covenant To ensure that our time together is enriching, students will abide by the terms of this agreement. Anyone in our intellectual community can suggest an addition. The group will decide to accept, reject, or revise it guideline number three. This class will be free of hate speech regarding sexual orientation, gender expression, race, and socioeconomic status or background. Inflammatory remarks will not go unchecked and will not be tolerated. Each member of this class is responsible for fostering an environment in which people and their ideas are respected. For the same reasons, students will strive to make remarks that are informed by our material and the history that surrounds it. Guideline number four. The N-word won't be used in this class by a person of any race, even if it consistently appears in our texts. The same goes for the F word, regardless of a person's perceived sexual orientation or gender expression. And this is simply not a space in which we call people trash. For the entire 13 years that I have been a professor, I've used a covenant like this. My research specialty is African American literature. So most of my teaching focuses on that tradition. The N-word often appears in the text I teach, but I never believed that I had to hear that word spoken in my workplace just because I had chosen to study art that often features it. Because so few white people think about these issues, let me pause to emphasize that the classroom is my workplace, and so are the conferences I attend. Now, when I go to a hip-hop concert, I know I'll be surrounded by white people screaming the N-word as they rhyme along with the performer. But that's not my workplace. Surely, I can expect better at work. And surely, the students we teach should be able to experience something more intellectually rigorous in their classes while they're trying to get an education. Okay, so what does my policy mean in practice? Part of what it means is that when we are reading passages aloud that contain the slur, we simply say N or Ns, depending upon if it's singular or plural. We're not saying N-word or N-words so that it feels and sounds clunky. It therefore easily becomes an unremarkable part of how we do things. However, this is not to say that I haven't had pushback over the years. Sometimes, black students feel they should be able to say the word and don't like my having a policy that suggests otherwise. Usually, they will respect the policy, though, because it's not like it's interrupting their ability to say it elsewhere. I have encountered black students who feel so strongly about their right to say the word that they challenge my policy. But even if they aren't completely conscious of it, experience has taught me that those challenges have more to do with their resistance to respecting the authority of a woman of color than with anything else. After all, American culture teaches them, teaches us all, that authority is rarely legitimate unless the person holding it is a straight white man. More common than pushback from students has been criticism from other professors. During my six years of probation before earning tenure, I had to accumulate observations of my teaching by senior colleagues. In one situation, the colleague noticed how students and I used N or Ns when reading passages aloud. She noted that it seemed like a practice everyone was comfortable with, but still suggested it was a problem when we did our post class review. Indeed, she proceeded to use the actual word with me, even as I was explaining how I don't want to hear that word in my workplace. I won't go into the details here because I've already published about that experience and similar experiences in an article titled Belief and Performance, Morrison and Me, which I link to on KarethaMitchell.com in the blog post about my class covenant. All I will say here is that such experiences are not at all uncommon. White people are not being special or unique when they hold themselves to incredibly low standards in their interactions with people who are not white. So if you think the exchange between the white male teacher and black male student is unique, you are dead wrong. That white male teacher was operating in exactly the same way that my colleague was operating with me. When the black student raised his voice and made noise with the desk He was responding in a way that acknowledged the violence with which he was being engaged. When institutions are literally built on denigrating and diminishing people of color, white people do not have to seem aggressive in order to do great violence. Denigrating and diminishing people of color might be said to grease the wheels that make our institutions and our country function. When people of color are denigrated, diminished, or dismissed, it will often look like normal, reasonable, white behavior. Only when the person of color addresses it directly does anyone pay attention, but the attention usually translates into the person of color being judged for how they responded and most often being considered violent. Make no mistake, the only difference between that student-teacher exchange and the exchange I had with my colleague is that I didn't respond in the moment in a way that acknowledged the violence she was doing. Just because people of color don't always respond as that student did, it doesn't mean that violence isn't being done and it doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the violence being done. After all, the consequences of telling the truth are serious for people of color because white people are encouraged structurally to hold themselves and each other to incredibly low standards. Literally everything in society is set up to encourage white people to hold themselves to low standards because doing so doesn't interfere with their being successful or even praised. They're considered good people simply for not being aggressively terrible. How about an actual standard for being considered good? If you didn't dismiss what I'm saying and actually thought about how low standards for white people is a structural reality, how might that empower you to choose to hold yourself to actual standards? Guilt is worthless, but feeling a sense of responsibility could be quite useful. What if you took some responsibility for making the spaces you inhabit less hostile for more people? Part of what I want to emphasize by drawing your attention to the similarity between the exchange with which I began this episode and my exchange with my colleague is that whether people of color express themselves calmly or not, white people often continue to denigrate, diminish, and dismiss. Again, this is because denigrating, diminishing, and dismissing people of color is at the heart of how our institutions work. If you won't acknowledge that, how can you possibly be a part of making institutions and the country more just? And, of course, all of this reminds me of the story that broke in February 2019 about the white male professor in Minnesota who was suspended for his use of the N-word. Stories like that gain traction because people are so interested in whether or not a white person is being harshly punished. The focus is rarely the impact on people of color. Again, what made that incident stand out is that black students actually met his aggression in a way that acknowledged it was aggression. They used what should be considered very professional and institutionally grounded methods, but still, they are considered the aggressive ones. Just because people of color don't always push back the way those savvy students did doesn't mean that these incidents aren't violent. It shouldn't take all that mobilization by students in marginalized groups for professors to reflect on how they are doing their jobs. White people are not being unique or special when they hold themselves and each other to low standards. However, because this is a structural issue and not something inherent in their character, white people can choose to actually do better. Will they? That's a question whose relevance will not fade as I continue to watch black and brown people being demonized every time they ask for a little decency. As I say, I've published on the exchange with my colleague, but here's an example that I don't write about in that essay. Years later, another colleague explained that he uses the word in his classes because he's not going to sugarcoat anything. He also tells his students not to let Mark Twain off the hook for his racism just because he lived in the 19th century. Now, how are his students supposed to digest the fact that their white male professor, who says not to let Twain off the hook, is using the word himself? Never bothering to ask himself that question, that's what I call holding yourself to incredibly low standards. Too often, white instructors, and instructors in other dominant identity categories insist that critical thinking skills are crucial when examining Shakespeare or the intricacies of the narrator's role in a story, but they act as if critical thinking isn't required for examining the environments they have inherited and continue to perpetuate in the classroom and in the profession more generally. In addition to these personal experiences, I want to offer concrete examples that highlight the textual concerns that emerge in the classroom. First, allow me to note that I emphasize vernacular culture in all of my classes, but especially in African-American literature classes. That is, I acknowledge that all of the literature we study has its foundation in vernacular culture, in ancient traditions, including fables and parables, the tall tales of folklore. I'm also thinking in terms of performances of poetry and songs, and traditions of telling both factual and fantastic stories aloud to pass down lessons and histories. In my classroom, we acknowledge that artistic text can be visual and oral, not just written. So I might play songs, and those songs may have the N-word in them. I mention this because even as I acknowledge the power of performance to do harm when we give life to words by speaking them in the classroom, that doesn't mean that we can't respect an artist's choices while we also take our role seriously. My students and I are practicing what it means to be literary scholars and cultural critics. We are not reenactors, so we need not give the word life ourselves in order to engage the art thoroughly. And now we'll take a more traditional textual example from Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. This excerpt comes from chapter four and what we find is huck describing jim and what he finds interesting about him now quoting from the novel miss watson's inn jim had a hairball as big as your fist which had been took out of the fourth stomach of an ox and he used to do magic with it He said there was a spirit inside of it, and it knowed everything. So I went to him that night and told him Pap was here again, for I found his tracks in the snow. What I wanted to know was what he was going to do and was he going to stay. Jim got out his hairball and said something over it. And then he held it up and dropped it on the floor. It fell pretty solid and only rolled about an inch. Jim tried it again, and then another time, and it acted just the same. Jim got down on his knees and put his ear against it and listened, but it war not no use, he said it wouldn't talk. Not giving the N-word life by speaking it doesn't diminish our ability to analyze this passage. My students and I can talk at length about Huck's fear of his father and desire to keep distance from him. We can talk about how Twain fleshes out Huck's character here. He's emphasizing his youth, the fact that he's a boy also very much matters because he finds this disgusting object to be fascinating and gives the readers details about how Big and solid it is. We can all appreciate the humor in how this is presented as well. We also speak about the intermingling of superstition and religion. Huck is often annoyed by all the religious lessons he gets because the widow has basically adopted him, but Twain also introduces forms of faith that traditional Christianity might disregard, and the magic around the ball is just one of many examples of this. The next passage I want to share is from earlier in the text, from chapter 2. Huck had slipped out of the house to go with Tom, and Tom had insisted upon playing a trick on Jim while he slept. In this excerpt, Huck is explaining how Jim later responds. Tom said he slipped Jim's hat off of his head and hung it on a limb right over him, and Jim stirred a little, but he didn't wake Afterwards, Jim said the witches bewitched him and put him in a trance and rode him all over the state and then set him under the trees again and hung his hat on a limb to show who'd done it. And next time Jim told it. He said they rode him down to New Orleans; and after that, every time he told it, he spread it more and more, till by and by he said they rode him all over the world, and tired him most to death, and his back was all over saddle boils. Jim was monstrous proud about it, and he got so he wouldn't hardly notice the other ends. Inns would come miles to hear Jim talk about it, and he was more looked up to than any inn in that country. Strange inns would stand with their mouths open and look him all over, same as if he was a wonder. Ends is always talking about witches in the dark by the kitchen fire, but whenever one was talking and letting on to know all about such things, Jim would happen in and say, Hmm, what you know about witches? And that end was corked up and had to take a back seat. Jim was most ruined for a servant because he got so stuck up on account of having seen the devil and been rode by witches. This passage is overflowing with the N-word. Because we have a policy on how to handle it, a student need not feel the need to avoid bringing this passage up if they want to make a point about it. As we read, we don't skip the word and act like we don't see it, so we don't treat it as if it's too powerful to be approached. At the same time, we're avoiding giving it life in our learning environment, but not in a clunky way so that we actually end up bringing unnecessary and distracting attention to it. Ultimately, even though it recurs more times than I care to count here, it doesn't become more important than anything else in the passage, but it certainly must inform our interpretation of the excerpt. With a passage like this, my students and I would discuss characterization again. Huck is our narrator, and he's shaping the reader's perception of Jim. Because he is white and is not considered an in himself, and because he has been thoroughly taught that Jim is an in. that clearly has an impact on his ability to convey Jim's character to the reader. While we might have an urge to see parts of ourselves in Huck in the first passage I shared, we have an urge to see Jim as ignorant and arrogant and ridiculous in ways that we don't identify with. The narrative creates distance between the reader and the character, and it does this even as it purportedly reveals that character. That is no accident. In my class, we don't pretend that race is an issue only when we're talking about people of color. So we mark whiteness as much as we mark blackness. Simple practices like that give teachers and students even more practice in examining everything that is shaping our experiences with literature and our experiences with each other. At the end of the day, If we're talking about race and we only mark people of color and we don't mark white people, then we're only reinforcing that white is the norm and everything else has to be distinguished from it. Only when you're marking every identity within a category are you simply describing. Otherwise, you're just reinforcing the hierarchy that makes whiteness, straightness, middle class status, normative, and everything else a distinction from it. In the last passage I want to share from Huck Finn, Huck has played a trick on Jim, and Jim explains how worried he had been about Huck, but while he was worrying, Huck was more interested in shaming him. It was 15 minutes before I could work myself up to go and humble myself to an end, but I'd done it, and I weren't ever sorry for it afterwards neither. I didn't do him no more mean tricks, and I wouldn't have done that one if I'd have known it would make him feel that way. Clearly, Huck has some introspection here as a character, but it is very much determined by the powerful lessons the United States has taught him, which led him to see Jim as an end, even as he tries to see Jim's humanity. Next, I want to share from James Baldwin's 1955 essay, Notes of a Native Son. I share this example because it illustrates how having a policy that names a few slurs creates a way of being and a way of knowing that is easily transferable. Because students get practice at being aware and self-aware about the power of language, when a student read the following passage in class, they immediately made an adjustment in the same way that we make adjustments around the N-word or the homophobic F-word. In this passage, Baldwin says that everyone in Harlem was under a bitter shadow because they knew about the racism suffered by black soldiers, Uh, serving in World War II. So no matter where those soldiers were born or grew up, they received their military training in the South in segregated camps. And so Baldwin says basically that bitterness for not only them, but also their loved ones was basically inescapable. He says, and I quote, it would have demanded an unquestioning patriotism, happily as uncommon in this country as it is undesirable for these people not to have been disturbed by the bitter letters they received, by the newspaper stories they read, not to have been enraged by the posters then to be found all over New York, which described the Japanese as yellow-bellied jays. Once again, When we analyze this passage, none of our rigor has to fall out simply because we didn't speak the slur. Indeed, we notice that Baldwin is as critical of the racial slur as we might be, but that doesn't mean that we have to give that slur life in our learning environment. Just because we see ourselves as people who wouldn't participate in what those posters are peddling doesn't mean that we give ourselves permission to put that term in the air. And we do these kinds of things because we want to hold ourselves to certain standards. When you hold yourself to a low standard, what will happen is you put those kinds of terms in the air. And then if anyone remarks on the harm that's been done, you respond by insisting, that you didn't intend anything harmful, in that moment, your supposed intentions become way more important than the impact. But the truth is the impact should always matter to people who want to do better and better work in the world. In that instance, you would be saying that even though someone is telling you there's been a harmful impact, that impact doesn't matter because you want to insist about your intention. And you want people to believe in your intention just because you said so, when your actual actions run counter to what you claim your intentions were. There was no need to put that discursive violence in the air in the first place. And let me be clear that I'm not offering these thoughts because I am infallible. I have had situations where I've said things in the classroom and then apologized to a student. In fact, in the fall of 2018, in my introduction to African American literature class, I said something in the second class that I deeply regretted. I emailed the student that I felt would be most directly impacted by it and very sincerely apologized. He dropped the class. But when I went into class the next time, I let all of the students know what I had said to him in my apology. I read them the entire apology because if the comment that was said was public, the apology shouldn't have simply been private. So I went into the classroom, read the entire apology and said to them, we are part of an intellectual community and I need to own this to you as well as to him. So again, this is not about being infallible and not making mistakes, but holding yourself to a high standard means that you're willing to take responsibility. That is what our students most want to see us model. Now I want to turn away from my perspective as an educator and toward the experiences of my former students.
2: Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Cam Justice. Uh, I'm a third-year student here at Ohio State, and I'm with three former students of Dr. Mitchell's. We're here to talk a little bit about Dr. Mitchell's policy on saying the N-word, whether it may be in text, in the classroom, or anywhere in general, and kind of talk about um, how that's affected a lot of what we do um, in the classroom. So. First, I'm going to introduce the three former students.
3: My name is Mark France, and I know Dr. Karitha Mitchell from uh, my Special Topics Literature class, where she introduced the concept of homemade citizenship.
4: My name is Bailey Gallagher. Um, I graduated in May of 2018, and I had Dr. Mitchell in her LGBTQ Lit class.
5: My name is Shira Nina and I know Professor Mitchell from several courses, but the most recent being a PhD-level seminar. Um, whose topic was uh, black women writers and speakers, 19th century.
2: What assumptions about this policy did you have coming into uh, Dr. Mitchell's course? So in
3: in middle school and high school, we read a lot of literature that included the N-word. And um, there was always kind of two options and it flipped back and forth depending on the teacher and the school. We would either omit it entirely and kind of have an erasure of the word itself, or we would use it in the context that it's used. And the assumptions I came into the class with were that it would be nice because we can acknowledge the uh, word itself without giving it too much power, uh, rhetorically speaking. Because using it out loud full on would be probably too strong for most cases and could cause some controversy. But omitting it entirely leaves out a lot of really important aspects of literature as far as how that word is placed and how it's used thinking about um, Huck Finn versus something like Atlanta.
2: Bailey?
4: I had never actually had a teacher before who had any sort of policy on that word in particular. Um, It was always just kind of what the student felt like doing when they were reading the text or, you know, obviously it's not an appropriate word to use in a casual context in class. But so I really didn't have any assumptions going into the class and I actually thought it was very nice to have just kind of a, a guideline on what to do with that word in a classroom.
5: Yeah, I think I had a similar experience to Bailey where I, you know, there was never really a set expectation for what to do when you encounter that word in texts um, in class. And I think my assumption going into the classroom, where, the, you know, into several classrooms of Professor Mitchell's where this was the policy was that. I think it was the first time that I felt um, black students' feelings had been acknowledged um, or thought about prior to the moment that, you know, you come across that word. I think in other classes, it was just sort of an afterthought. You know, maybe someone would use the word when they were reading aloud in class, and then that might be when a professor or a teacher would say, you know, let's refrain from using that word. But I mean, the effect has already happened. The damage has already been done. You know, I thought that it was... A thoughtful policy because I felt acknowledged before I even entered the classroom.
2: So off that point how do you feel that it affected your engagement with the literature or the course in general? As far
3: as with engaging the text I felt like I had more analytical control over the text because I wasn't afraid of approaching the n-word at all. I was more likely to approach it actually because it was more of a level playing field where I could take this word and use it in an argument to present my thoughts on the piece without being like too self-conscious about that, and worrying about being offensive or in any way hurtful.
5: I think, you know, similar to Mark, Dr. Mitchell's policy on this word made me think about the rhetorical power that not just this word, but other words have in the text that we were engaging with. And it helped me to build rhetorical arguments about text that I was engaging with, whether or not it was with this word. So in the class that i most recently with her the seminar on black women writers and speakers in the 19th century um, we had several conversations about passing um, getting into the details of what exactly the exact shade of your skin might mean during the time so you know f- you know thinking about the way that the word applied to certain individuals really I think enhanced arguments I was able to make in class and deepen my, in my critical thinking skills for my papers.
2: Absolutely. It, it seems that you're all fairly open to a lot of this, po- you know, a lot of what this policy has done um, in and outside of class, but did any of you experience uh, students that had, you know, a resistance to this policy or were like, this doesn't make sense for me? And if so, uh, could you tell me a little bit about those experiences?
3: I really, in in my class at least, I didn't have Anyone opposed to it? Um, most people were really open minded about it.
2: In our class, I, I only recall one slip up, um, and that was corrected really quickly and, and partway through the semester, and then it seemed like it was a non issue from then on out. But did you experience anything in
5: our class? I think not with the N word in particular, but I think that there were several instances where other derogatory terms for uh, black people had come up. You know, uh, Professor Mitchell has. You know, her policy extends to just the hurtful ways of um, interacting with pretty much any person. Mm-hmm. So I remember in my um, 398 class that I took with her, we you know, she made a point of saying we, we won't be calling people trash in this class. Um, so, you know, we had several situations where I think people struggled with not just the N-word, but with, with other words. And as they cropped up, they were dealt with. I think, if anything, I've heard blowback from other students about pronouns. Yeah, definitely. You know, sort of undermining their importance. Yes, for sure.
2: So what was the impact of this policy after the course finished up, if there was any? And if so, what is it? I think it has generally made me more
3: self-aware of not only my actions, but of my own like kind of values and like how I approach communicating with people and how I approach interacting with people, especially in workspace and in class space. Not necessarily that I'm being more careful, but just that I'm thinking more about what I'm saying.
4: I found myself calling people out all the time now, <laughs> which <laughs> is a nice you know, effect from this policy, definitely was the cause of that. So, you know, I'm confident in telling people how I feel about that word now.
5: I think I've been obviously opposed to the use of the word coming from non-black people, but you know, The effect of this class on me was me thinking critically about how i feel when this word is applied to me by other people of color and i think that there is you know sort of an assumption that it's more okay if it's coming from other black people Mm -hmm. but i realized in her classes that there are different opinions and if it makes me uncomfortable i don't have to accept that word even coming from people who look just like me so it's made me think critically about how I engage with the word with um, other black people and you know it's really made me realize that it's not something that I want to be called at all you know I don't think there's I think mean, there's a difference but
2: and I I think that would be if any backlash would come from this policy mm-hmm. you know a lot of times it would be from black students that's what I would mm-hmm. imagine it's just like oh well I, I feel that I can use it, right? And I, I didn't see that a whole bunch, which was refreshing and nice mm-hmm. to see. They were able to think critically about um, how they use the word and if they use, you know choose to use the word and the way that would impact others. So I think that's mm-hmm. a really valuable piece to her policy.
3: Going back to like um, how there's usually binary decisions, like use the word, don't use the word, like how to approach that. But I think by combining the two and finding that middle ground, something I never really thought of when I was younger, she really did find a middle ground that lets you participate in class with that word in the room, but gives it zero power. At that point, you can look at it from an outside kind of perspective where you're not being affected by it, regardless of who you are, and then engaging with the text in a more critical level. And I thought that was really impressive.
5: Yeah, and it makes you think more critically in your other classes as well, because it's not, I mean, obviously in courses um, on African American literature, you're bound to encounter it, but you know, you know, an American literature class that you would encounter as well from white authors, you know, you begin to see the ways that other students engage with the word who haven't been in a, a class of Professor Mitchell's and even how other instructors engage with the word or how they moderate discussions that yeah. involve it. You know, in, o- in other classes in the past, I think when that word comes up, there tends, there tends to be a, a moment where of silence where everyone's head looks up and goes to the one black kid in the class and, you know, everyone's waiting for your reaction. Right. And I think in Professor Mitchell's class, it sort of takes that pressure mm-hmm. off, of, Definitely. Of, off of students. Off of everyone.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you all for your time. Um, I appreciate it.
1: I started this podcast episode with an exchange between a white male teacher and a black male student. Among other things, the black male student says that the teacher is speaking from a less informed position because they had an assembly and talked through these issues and the teacher was not there. So the student has reached his conclusion about the difference between his saying the N-word and his white male teacher saying the N-word, and he's reached that conclusion in part through conversation. He is speaking from experience with an intellectual community in which people have challenged each other and learned from each other. This is precisely what cannot happen when people in dominant identity categories never think about what standards they should use to judge their performance in any given job. Because, for example, being white is the most important criterion for being hired and retained, White Americans rarely reflect on how they could do their jobs better. Everyone assumes they earned the job and deserve to have it, so they are rarely made to consider objective standards. In fact, experience has taught me that objective standards are never so passionately discussed as when the candidate is not white. Does a company, university, or department end up with a workforce that is 85 to 90% white because they are the most qualified the country has to offer? That's certainly what we're taught to believe. However, I have been surrounded by white people all my life and that has not translated into being surrounded by excellence. When a candidate is white, they can be considered a good fit, even when their qualifications are not all that impressive. But a candidate of color has to be exceptional and put white people at ease to be considered a good fit. Does an institution end up with a workforce that is 95% straight because they are the best the country has to offer? That is what we've been taught to believe, but I've been surrounded by straight people my whole life and that has not meant being surrounded by excellence. It has not meant being surrounded by high moral standards. It has not meant being surrounded by stability. Do we end up being able to say she's the department's first openly trans person because she is the first exceptional trans person to come along or because cisgender people have consistently been hired without being exceptional? The unearned advantage of being identified with dominant identity categories has shaped our professional environment, and pretending it hasn't, means holding ourselves and each other to incredibly low standards. I will leave you with a few more very practical questions to consider. If you acknowledged that not every reader is white, how might you teach differently? Even if every single one of your students is considered white, how might you challenge yourself to be more rigorous by remembering that readers of color exist. The texts you're teaching have non-white readers. They have readers with different physical and cognitive abilities, readers who aren't middle class, readers who aren't cisgender, readers who aren't straight. How might considering those possibilities help us all apply actual standards to ourselves as we evaluate how well we believe we are doing our job.
0: Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19 Podcast or get in touch with us at C19 Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.